Hello, dreamers. Today is June 5th, 2020. The conversation I have to share with you today, I had with Carla Blowy several weeks ago. And we talk in this episode about something that happened in her life more than 30 years ago. But what she has to share about that event and the dream and her experience with dreams as a tool for healing is all timeless. Before we go to that, though, I want to share that what's really on my mind right now is the events of these very recent days, these last couple of weeks, specifically the murder of George Floyd and the incredible cry going on right now for a solution to the problem of police violence against black people here in the U.S. and for the real work of anti-racism. To the black people in this community, I want to say that I'm listening and I'm learning, but I want to understand how to ensure that the Dreamers Den community, the free Facebook group, the membership community, all the live events are welcoming and safe spaces. We come together in these events and in the community because it's all about personal growth, really. Introspection and getting insight and guidance and expressing our creativity. We do this in community with compassion and the spirit of mutual support. So I believe we have the capacity for and the interest in having hard, necessary conversations, and I'm committed to doing that. Please know that I'm listening, and you can contact me always through thedreamersden.org. Before I shift over to this conversation with Carla, I do want to let you know that in it, Carla shares the story of the death of her five-year-old son and the precognitive nightmare she had the night before he died. If this is something you'd like to listen to today, you're going to hear a moving story and understand how Carla sees dreams as a tool for healing and definitely get more insight into dreams. If that's not something you want to listen to today or you have kids listening along with you, you might want to come back to this one. But if you are here for this right now, then let's get started. You're listening to the Dreamer's Den podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I'm here along with guest dream workers, authors, and teachers to talk about diving deep into your dreams. We're skipping the small talk and going for conversations about what matters most to us, what's touching us so deeply that it shows up in our dreams in one form or another. We talk about engaging with dreams to experience insight, inspiration, healing, and meaningful connection with one another. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can catch all these conversations. Visit thedreamersden.org slash open for a free video and mini book I put together to help you learn more about opening up or deepening your own relationship with your dreams. My guest today is Carla Blowy. 
Carla is a certified DreamWork facilitator through the Marin Institute for Projective DreamWork with director Jeremy Taylor. She's the author of the book Dreaming Kevin, The Path to Healing, which she published in 2014. She presents dream workshops for bereavement groups, dream groups, and national bereavement organizations. And she facilitates individual and group dream work sessions in person and online for anyone dreaming big, small, or not at all. Carla weaves in the values of spirituality with personal loss and transition for psychological and spiritual growth. So welcome, Carla. Hi, thank you for inviting me to be on, Leilani. Oh, it's so good to have you here. So I would love to ask you first how your relationship with dreams began, how you first knew that dreams were important to you. Well, I've been able to recall my dreams since I was three years old. Mm -hmm. And so dreams always mattered to me, even though I didn't know what they meant until much later in life. Um, but the problem was that they didn't really matter to the people around me. And so I didn't have the support that I would have certainly appreciated as a young child. Um, my mother, you know, would quickly dismiss my, my nightmares and, and weird dreams as just a bad dream. Yeah. And, you know, my father was a very vivid dreamer and he would uh, certainly empathize and console me, but he didn't pursue it. And, you know, probably because he, he didn't know what to do with them. He didn't know what to do with his own dreams. And my friends thought that my dreams were bizarre. So, you know, I, that led me to believe that there was something wrong with me, mm. something crazy. And um, so I just kind of kept them to myself. And then um, later, um, when I was in college, I took a psychology class. And, you know, going off to college certainly broadens your horizons anyway. So um, that was the first time I realized that, you know, this, this, this dream stuff isn't as crazy as what I've been led to believe. But I didn't do too much with it until a few years later in my 20s when I took a class at a local uh, church and our group met for several weeks after that. And the facilitator worked from a book uh, by an author called Clyde Reed. And the book was called um, uh, Dreams Discovering Your Inner Teacher. And it just blew my mind. I was hooked. It was, I was like both fascinated and appalled. Huh. have a notion that everything in my dreams is an aspect of me. Yeah. Everything. And so from that moment on, um, I, you know, I was hooked. I was hooked and things started to make sense. And those, those crazy dreams, the bizarre dreams, the nightmares that I'd had, you know, all my life started to make sense. So that was it. That was my turning point. Yeah. And it sounds like you had been waiting for that moment. I mean, you'd had vivid dreams, memorable dreams for so long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had, you know, I had uh, dream visits by uh, grandparents. I had um, some prophetic dreams. I had some precognitive dreams. They were just, you know, all on that level that, you know, as a teenager, um, you know, I, I didn't have anywhere to go with it. Yeah. So I, I love how you said you were, you were partly appalled at this idea that everything <laughs> in your dreams is an aspect of you. Yeah. Um, and I think, 
I think when we're new to that idea, it is a little freaky, right? You know, there's, there's some, some unsavory characters in our dreams or um, characters with qualities that we don't want to identify with. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's, it's like that. I remember thinking uh, too, uh, you know, like, well, why would she show up in my dreams or um, how dare, how dare, you know, I, I, why would I have a dream about that person or, or her, um, you know, I can't stand her or, or she's been mean to me or whatever. And then when you realize, you know, that all dreams have multiple meanings and layers to them and that these characters that show up are aspects of ourselves that we identify, mm -hmm. you know, you go, oh my gosh, that's me. That is a part of, that's an aspect of me treating myself that way. And so I'm, I'm guessing that that feeling of, of being appalled has shifted for you over time now. Oh, it's been yeah. so many years. Yeah. How did that happen for you that you came to, to be more uh, open to that idea that these are all parts of you? Well, it, it came from that original class that I was telling you about, mm. that, you know, that I took at the church. Uh, just because the facilitator was, was very engaging, the group was, um, the group was excited about it and wanted to meet. Um, I was learning, you know, uh, I was learning a whole new, you know, a whole new way of speaking, you know, the language of dreams. And I began studying, you know, and so um, that, and actually that occurred about five years. I would say that was about five years before Kevin died. Uh -huh. So I was getting, um, I was getting, a becoming accustomed to this dream speak and I was excited about it but you know when I had the nightmare about him I I thought oh my gosh I I know nothing I know nothing about this process well wow. and um but it it you know it, be, it became a mission then for me and and it's it was really a a piece of survival yeah yeah it was it was really about surviving and um i there was no getting around i had to figure out what that was about yeah i mean i i can't even say i can imagine because i know that i can't mm -hmm. so maybe this is a good time to ask you then from that time where you came to see that your dreams did matter and that mm -hmm. there were all these aspects of yourself to now where you've experienced at least the one potent precognitive dream about Kevin and mm -hmm. you've experienced visitation dreams and you've worked with bereaved families who also sometimes have these visitation dreams. What's your view now of what dreams are for us and what kinds of dreams we can have? Well, they're an alternative tool for healing. I mean, I really believe um, in dreaming the way to healing. I don't think it's for everyone, but it certainly was for me. And so when I, you know, began talking to bereaved parents about it in particular, um, you know, my goal was to offer something that was more than the traditional uh, breathing process, you know, and at the time, of course, this was back in the early 90s. We were just sort of coming out of that or, or it was just sort of on the, the edge of the stages of grief and realizing that Kubler-Ross's stages of grief were about the dying. It wasn't about 
the experience of the grievers you uh-huh. know, that, that had been, you know, perceived to be left behind. So it was, a, you know, an opportunity for sure. Mm-hmm. And how, how's the dream sharing process with the bereaved families? Do people come to you specifically because they are dreaming or is that something that you invite and find that people can open up to more dreams in their grief? What happens is they, they've either had the dream visit that they truly want to believe is real, but they're not sure because they're, you know, their belief system or their religion or their culture tells them, you know, that they certainly couldn't be so chosen to as had such a, you know, divine kind of dream like that, which I believe is not true. I believe that we all have that um, ability and we all have that opportunity. So um, they either have been having those kinds of dreams or they've been having these, you know, horrible dreams where they're dreaming of their, their child or their loved one and they're reliving the death. You know, they've been hurt or they've been reliving um, the circumstances surrounding the death and they can't get past that. Yeah. So, um, it's mostly, you know, as you know, with dream work, if, if we're not willing to see it differently, then the dream is going to be what it is on the surface. So, you know, showing them how I saw my dreams differently, how I was able to break it down and look at, um, look at it from a different perspective, you know, sort of shift to the left or shift to the right to, you know, view those symbols or those images and, and the landscape of the dream a little bit differently, showing them that gives, have given, I think gives them that chance to consider that there might be more to it. Yeah. And oftentimes that's all they need. They have one dream and that's all they want to do with it. But it is so profound um, in the awakening that happens. And I'm sure you've experienced that as well is that when someone has that aha, that's what, that's what we call it in projective dream work with uh, our certification with Jeremy. Yeah. Um, You know, we call it the aha moment when, um, there's just no denying that what has been presented, whether it's in projective feedback or whether I recognize it myself, that there's just no denying that there's a truth there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I must look at it. Mm-hmm. I must look at it. I feel that so tenderly when you talk about people having had a dream that they really want to believe is real, that they really mm-hmm. want to know was it, um, a connection with the loved one who they've, who they've lost. And do people get to arrive at that sense of aha in your presence with the visitation type dream? I mean, is that part of how someone knows whether it was real? Um, I think what happens is I validate them with my own story. Uh, Um, You know, they listen to, I share my experiences and I had, have had so many over the 29 years that I can pull from to, you know, give them an example of what I know for me to be a dream visit. And when I know that there's a difference in a grief dream or a dream of lo- about loss or transition or whatever else is happening 
in the other aspects of our life. So I think that, again, like showing them how I break it down and what it, what I thought it meant, and then moving through the layers and, and sort of, um, you know, looking at the, the, the symbols and particularly the character piece, you know, the people that show up in our dreams um, and showing, you know, how we could see them differently and how they, they, would they be willing to consider that this is an aspect of myself in grief, that in my mourning, in my bereavement, that um, is either overwhelming or, or is, an, is the shadow side. You know, mm-hmm. but the shadow side of myself that's unknown to me and that I, I don't want to acknowledge in that. So the dream visit piece, then um, there are qualities that I recognize. And um, and those qualities, actually, I learned from uh, two wonderful authors of um, a work called Hello from Heaven. With Bill Guggenheim and Judy Guggenheim, and they interviewed thousands of uh, bereaved families about um, after after death communication, and they they called it uh, they coined the term ABC after death communication. Okay. And dream visits was one of them, and uh, and a dream visit that they defined was a spontaneous appearance of a loved one that was not. Uh, manipulated or orchestrated by a specific by a psychic a medium or a meditation or you know any other kind of uh, tool Mm -hmm. it's happening spontaneously in a dream and and then the qualities of that that people reported of their dreams they were able to come come down with you know five categories which was the quality of a dream visit is different than a, than a normal dream, we might say, because the imagery is much more vivid and there's an energy that is specific to um, the loved one, to the deceased loved one. The setting might be uh, familiar, but the deceased loved one is engaged in some kind of normal activity that gets your attention. And the piece about this quality of this kind of dream is that the dreamers lose it. In the dream, I know, wait a minute, you're supposed to be dead. Uh-huh. You know, I know you're lucid. I know you should be dead, but here you are. And you are alive and you're whole and you're holy and you are um, you're beaming. There's this wonderful uh, appearance to you. Um, so the next step of that quality thing that happens though, what you know, recognizing the quality and the lucidness. There's an anticipation in a dream visit that there's something to, about to be happen, and that the, the deceased loved one then makes an entrance. So there's a threshold that is crossed. Uh. You know, the door opens and they enter, or, you know, a gate is opened, or there's somehow there's some threshold that is a barrier that is suspended or lifted to allow that access while the dreamer is lucid. Uh-huh. And then the appearance of them. And it, it varies too. I mean, I've I've had that I've had the visit where the loved one appears um, you know, as they did when when they died. 
and it's frightening and it's scary. And then there's a shift in the dream because of the lucidness and they appear completely healthy and whole. Well, wow. you know, um, then there's always a message or some communication that occurs in the dream, whether it is illustrated in a metaphor or it's, you know, spoken directly. Um, they may be delivered telepathically as well. And sometimes the message is a simple reminder of something that I've forgotten or that I really don't believe, that I don't know and that I don't believe. And bottom line, that I'm loved, mm -hmm. that I'm loved by, you know, this, by this person. Um, there's also disturbing messages that occur, you know, as well. And sometimes that's an indication of the dreamer's need for understanding or conflict between the two of them um, or some conflict about a grief issue that's a hidden obstacle to healing. And then finally, you know, there's this the fifth category is the gift of the dream that it's an opportunity to see our deceased loved one, to see our grief journey and to see ourselves differently from this higher perspective and move toward reconciliation. Mm. There's always instant and, and total recall of that type of dream. Now, the problem is that I have found is that people want to focus only on the dream visits. Uh huh. Where, and, and it's great, it's a gift, but that's going to fade. Um, it's going to become a memory and it's going to fade like that as well. Whereas the grief dreams, the processing dreams, the dreams of loss and transition are the ones that we don't want to pay attention to sometimes or that, you know, that stick with us, but we're not willing to see anything more about it. So. Well, and the, the visitation dream is a continuation of the connection that's so painful mm -hmm. to feel. Mm -hmm. Yes, a continued relationship. Yeah, and and to feel that it's gone, to go into the grief dreams and transition dreams is is partly to feel uh, the absence of that. So mm -hmm. it is it is less appealing, of course, to of course. to dig but into. Like like all of our other dreams, those dreams, grief dreams, are commentary on what's happening in my waking world and my inner world in this this very traumatic. Um, time of grieving mm -hmm. and um, this commentary is presented to me about what the issue is that I can you know uh, come to terms with or the things that I can let go of things that I, or or beliefs or perceptions that I can release that will move me further along towards healing yeah so those dreams if someone does choose to to go into that do those dreams sometimes have even more of that aha that allows for healing and clarity and, and sort of a positive impact on their waking life? Oh, I absolutely believe so. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because the, the dream visit, the aha there is, ah, oh, you still exist. Yeah. You know, um, and once that is, uh, once that gift is given to you, uh, of um, you know, and, and acknowledging that life does continue, 
and that we have a continued relationship and you know the, the whole continuum of consciousness once that's confirmed for me it was half the battle yeah you know it was half the battle the other half of the battle was how am i going to live in this physical world with this kind of pain and suffering yeah do you ever encounter people who are just longing for that that first half of the battle that visitation that says their loved one is does still exist and they haven't had a visitation dream and you know given um it's it's so hard because given the fact that i loved so deeply i loved so unconditionally that i should be given i i deserve this dream visit and why aren't they coming yeah am i not having that and and honestly i don't have an answer for anyone um that that hasn't had that dream all i can say is that it might be more helpful to look at other ways in which they're trying to communicate other ways in which they're trying to connect and maybe dreaming isn't the way it's going to work you know uh-huh. um, maybe it's the whispers maybe it's the signs maybe it's the you know the the penny that drops at your feet those kinds of things yeah that um you know where energy is manipulated and they're able to orchestrate some sort of you know uh, connection so you know it it's hard to um for for people who are waiting for that dream and longing and yearning for that visit to say okay well i'm sorry it's not for you i can't say that either I don't, I don't know what uh, makes it happen or doesn't make it happen. I, there's no science. Yeah. Me behind that. It's a spiritual experience. Do you have an example dream? You've, you've alluded to getting to hear so many dreams over the years and maybe an example of one of your own, but one of these dreams that, that did carry some important ahas and you know, was worked to, to find those. Do you have a story you could share? Well, I would say that the, for me, it's, it's really the turning point. The big dream for me was the nightmare. Yeah. Um, it was the, the prophetic and precognitive aspects of that, about, you know, about Kevin's death. And, you know, I write that, obviously that's what the book is about. And I write about what that, that yeah. dream was like in, in um, examining that and, and all the other things that were happening in my waking life as well. So, I mean, that dream became the organizing principle of my life. And it really is the central reference point from everything forward from, you know, from that day forward, because it, you know, on that day, I began my journey 29 years ago as a bereaved mother who took the road less traveled because of that dream. Yeah, and it turned out to be the high road because I chose the path of of self discovery and spiritual growth, you know, and it and it led to healing the wounds of grief that were in in my body and my mind and my heart and my soul. It it was just that significant point on the timeline of my life that, you know, not only marked the the um, death of my son, 
but also my awakening from the illusions I had of death and the afterlife, and my appreciation for dream work as a tool for healing. And, and you know, it just all began that day with that dream, and I was given knowledge about an event in my immediate future, uh-huh. the death of my son, but it was also about the transition that would occur for both of us in the execution of what I believe to be our spiritual contract individually and with each other and with the divine. Mm. So um, if you'd like, if you think we have time, I can certainly read that from the book. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. I think, I think that would be helpful for everyone listening right now. And then maybe we can talk a little bit more about how mm -hmm. that dream has carried through has stayed important to you in all the years since then okay yeah. sure so it's titled the nightmare i had it january 6 1991 the night before uh, kevin died i'm walking down our street with my children amber age eight and kevin age five i'm very afraid because a cult group is trying to take them away from me I have the children close to me so that I can protect them from the cult people who are walking alongside us in the street. They seem to know Kevin. Next, I'm in a house on my street, hiding in the shadows with the children, and the cult group is in the house. They are all women, swaying side to side, moving us along in their circle. The room brightens, and a blonde-haired woman emerges from the shadows. She's speaking to me. We are not safe. I know we are not safe. And I know that they want the children. Amber and Kevin are to my right. And I have my arm across them. But suddenly I feel a black hand come across my chest to grab Amber. I slap it away, screaming that she cannot have her. I'm screaming obscenities, fighting the woman hand to hand. The children and I run, and we run home. In our house, I know we are safe, and the doors are locked. Next, I'm in the kitchen, standing by the counter. The kitchen is bare, and I'm the only one there. The children are playing elsewhere in the house when I hear Kevin calling to come find him. Mommy, come find me. I'm in the... I start running. I run to find him, and I realize that there are no no floors, and I must climb these ladders and stairs to go up. He's calling for me to come find him, and I climb frantically in the direction of his voice. His voice becomes louder and more insistent. Mommy, come find me. And then breathless, I climb the last ladder stretching to the top story and I pull myself over to the wood floor. I scramble about in the shadows and and I regain my footing to find another obstacle in my way. Stepping toward this closed door, I grip the knob and abruptly push it open. Horrified, I come face to face with the blonde woman from the cult. Locking her eyes with mine, she bore a hole through my soul with her cold stare. In disbelief, I stood frozen in the doorway, stunned that she had found the children in me. Emerging from the dark, her flaxen hair seemed to illuminate the space above her, revealing the wooden rafters in the attic. 
She stood erect in the shadows like a sentry on duty with her right forearm raised about waist high. In her hand, she grasped a long silver blade that pointed upwards. Unyielding in her mission, she summoned its power to intercept my path. Stunned, I sensed Kevin dangling from the rafters below her feet. Her relentless stare pierced through my heart, confirming her message. She had come for my son. In defense, I covered my eyes to break the spell while a desperate cry of denial came from deep within me. Peering through my trembling fingers, I exposed myself again. And with one more look, she commanded the door shut, leaving me trapped on the other side. Screaming like a madwoman, I beat my fist upon the heavy attic door that separated my son from me. Even now, even now, 29 years later, when I read it to that degree, when I think about it to that degree, I'm, I'm still stunned by the power of it, um, by the authority that it had. Um, yeah. I'm stunned too. It's thank you, you know, for going into it and reading it aloud. That's really you're welcome. You know, of course, less than twelve hours later, you know, he died in a bike truck accident in the driveway of our neighbor's home on our street. Yeah. Even though there are aspects of this that are not um you know, specific to his accident, specific to what was happening, the location, the timing, all of that was there. The one piece that is huge in this is the kitchen, that coming back to the kitchen, because that's where I was when I heard him, him being the driver of the truck, um, calling out for help. Oh. And I knew then that it was, I knew it was about Kevin. I knew it immediately. Um, I, I was in my kitchen, which was the back of the house, but I could hear it. Uh -huh. My front door was closed. It was the middle of winter, but I heard it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had just, he, we had come home from, from school um, or from picking up my oldest daughter from school and dropping her off at gymnastics. And we had come back and, you know, it was a weird day, um, which, you know, it's more, uh, you can learn more about in the book and stuff, but it was a, a really weird day when I woke up from this nightmare and had to get on with my day, was get the kids off to school. You know, we had just come back from winter vacation and, and all that. And, um, you know, push, pushing all that away. Uh, but he didn't want to go to school that day. Oh. Um, there And there were so many things that made me stop that day of a difference or a shift in his temperament and in his mood that um, I was not connecting to the nightmare at all. Yeah. You know. So anyway, fast forward. 
throughout the rest of the day, um, I, I just kind of kept us close to home. And then we came back from picking up my daughter from school and taking her to gymnastics. And we were supposed to go back in an hour to pick her up. So, you know, I was starting dinner and everything. And he came in and said, um, wanted me to read him a book. And um, he wanted to go outside, ride his bike for a little bit. And where we live, and I'm sure it's this way in Utah too, that, you know, they, it's winter time, but we're always outside. Uh-huh. You, we, that's just where we live, you know, yeah. you're outside. And so riding a bike was not unusual in the winter. Um, our sidewalk was cleared. He knew he could go from our driveway and the front of our house, the sidewalk, up to the corner, which was clear. And that was his usual path. But that day he went the opposite direction. Oh. You know, and um, so, you know, there were just many things that were um, pointing to, yeah, pointing to the inevitability. And, uh, um, but, you know, all the time, I, I wasn't making any connection to the nightmare until later that night, till after it all happened. Oh, yeah. And then I was horrified, just absolutely horrified Yeah, uh, that I had not paid attention, that I, um, you know, didn't heed this warning, that I didn't save him. It was completely my fault. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I was devastated. Um, it was certainly unlike anything I had ever experienced in my life. But the, the truth, there was a truth in the dream that resonated throughout my being. And the guilt piece and just being completely overwhelmed by the guilt and the trauma, you know, I mistakenly thought it was a warning, you know, that I ignored out of fear. Uh-huh. And, and I suffered greatly for that for a long while until I started to decode it, you know, with help. Um, there was certainly not anything I could have managed in that state on my own. So, yeah. you know, definitely had help. And I had to, you know, I came to the, to the um, decision that um, I had to trust that in my dream world, my God would never take me where God's grace wouldn't protect me. Mm. And so when I re-examined the initial perceptions of the nightmare, I realized that, you know, my ego had written its own story of this message, you know, and produced the nightmare because I was, I was too afraid to see the real interpretation and it took several months, but, uh, you know, the prophetic message of the dream was that Kevin was being called to fulfill his destiny and I was being called to pursue mine. Uh Uh-huh. And, and that theme has run through my life <laughs> for the rest of my days here. So 29 years later, there are still things that I learned from this dream. Yeah, it's, it's full in so many ways. So many ways. Yeah. yeah. And I love sharing it with people who, are, who, who understand dream work because they always can bring, you know, a new... Um, you know, a new perspective to me about it. And isn't that amazing? 29 years later, after a dream you've, you've worked so deeply with over mm-hmm. time that there can still be, still be new perspectives for you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, as you were telling me that story, you said that there was some inevitab- inevitability to it that you realized mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. And is that is that your perspective that came later after working this dream that it was not a warning you could have done anything about, but that that this was inevitable? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. There were, there you know there was not only um, his behavior on that day. Um, there were other things that had happened. He had drawn a picture that is now in the book um, that I have found uh, many days later that was about his understanding of what was coming for him. Oh. Ascension. So there's that. There were many... I realized and found later on there were several drawings that he had made that were done approximately six to about six months beforehand. And uh, oh my gosh, when I found those and and realized it was the only language he had to process what was going on inside of him, he didn't you know he couldn't verbalize that. Didn't yeah. have that you mm-hmm. know, cognitive understanding of it, but he had a spiritual understanding of what his agreements were, mm. and uh, and it was all laid out. It was all laid out. It was profound, just so profound. So it was not only the dream, you know, my dream and what was happening in in my inner world. That was what was happening in his inner world as well, and the two intersected finally to confirm, you know, this was not an accident, was not a coincidence, you know, yeah. of, of uh, time or of a person, you know, that just happened to be a, a driver of a truck backing out of a driveway and, you know, the coincidence of Kevin riding his bike on at that particular moment. Yeah. There was, a, there was so much to it. And it, it, you know, kind of sent me crazy for a while, for sure. Yeah. I was yeah. so, so, so fortunate to have a grief counselor um, who was willing to walk that journey with me, to have a dream and spiritual mentor who was willing to help me unpack some of the dreams um, outside of, you know, outside of therapy and, and um, supportive, supportive family and friends that, you know, we're willing to, you know, walk that with me. Not everybody could. Yeah. But I would feel like, you know, whoever, whoever's there is meant to be there. People come and go in and out of our lives. And the people that are there at the time are the ones that are meant to be there for themselves and, you know, and for you. So. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, what, what a blessing, as you say, to have had people who supported you in this. So. With this dream, I mean, there's so many directions we could go to mm-hmm. continue this conversation, but I'm feeling interested in this this sense that the dream was not a warning. It was not something that you were supposed to take action about in that moment, mm-hmm. but it offered you this entire context for your life and guidance about what's coming 
as compared, you know, this is kind of about different types of dreams again. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard other people's stories of precognitive dreams. It feels like, uh, as so many things in dreams do, very mysterious um, Mm -hmm. of how to hear what the dream really wants to say to us, you know, if it's a warning or if it's just scary or if it's something we're only going to understand later, whether it's 12 hours later or 10 years later. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's, it's really a, a huge question, a spiritual question and a life question, but sort of about these things that we can prevent and that, that we can't, you know, the, mm-hmm. the tragedies yeah. that we don't want to, we don't want a tragedy to strike because of something we could have prevented. Yeah. But yeah. on the other hand, there are these inevitable events in our lives that, um, that there would, there was no, there would be no warning that we're supposed to act on because they are what's meant to happen. So, so yes, I, I, okay. So yes, I have had other dreams where I feel and I sense that I was given um, direction Uh to do something about, but I think that my, my um, discernment in that, you know, definitely has come with great great study you know and prayer uh-huh and really sitting with it because there's so many things again okay so let's put it this way we realize that every dream that comes to us is on one level about us and on multiple layers and levels about can be about anything other things yeah. So we always have to look at that type of a dream, this what we perceive to be a warning dream or you know, a dream that's presenting a situation to us that, you know, should we do something about it? Um on that those personal on that personal level and always do the personal association stuff. How much of this is metaphor, how much of this is about me, what um what is it that is happening in my life at this moment, all those questions. Uh And then once, once you can, you know, sort of uh, shake through all that and, and then it still comes down to no, there's clear direction here that you need to act on something, even if it is sharing, maybe it's just as much as sharing that dream with someone else. Uh Uh-huh. The, per- the person that's in it or the person that's involved in it and letting it just land where it lands. I, it, I just recently have had that experience uh, with a, a dear, dear friend who's dying. And uh, I had a dream about two and a half months ago that mm, didn't make much sense to me. And I knew that um, I had to, you know, sit with it for a while, but I contacted her and, and wanted to share it. Well, it was one of those things where, you know, you play phone tag and, you know, you never get around to actually having that conversation until what appears to be too late. Um, when I then was informed that um, she was dying, I went, oh my gosh, we never got to talk about my dream. Uh-huh. And so I had to make that decision. Now, do I share that with her now? And I still had that, that feeling. I still had that, yes, I need to. 
I don't understand what this dream is about for her. I get the pieces that are about for me, but all I can do is offer it. It'll land where it lands. She'll pull from that what she needs or what is true for her or not at all. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of discernment in, in doing that, but um, I would say it probably goes back to, to that, that gut level knowing yeah. that you have to do something with it and you have to be very careful, you know, you do have to be careful. So. And that's back to, that's back to, uh, as Jeremy said, the aha is the only reliable touchstone in mm-hmm. dream work. It's that, mm-hmm. n- that sense of knowing mm-hmm. we, ca- we cannot analyze intellectually oh, this dream is precognitive, therefore I X, Y, or Z, or this dream is a warning, therefore I such and such. I mean, we, fi- mm-hmm. we have to feel into it and, and have a sense of what's resonant and what, mm-hmm. you know, and you've, you've said discern, and it, I think it is, well, I'll share this with you. It, it keeps coming to me. I, I don't know if I've shared with you how much I like to work with the five elements from Chinese medicine and no. mm-hmm. dreams. But so much of what you have said and what I heard in my imagined version of your nightmare mm-hmm. resonates, resonates with the metal energy. And mm-hmm. metal is all about discernment and it's all about boundaries, c- cutting away what we no longer can or should or want to keep. Mm-hmm. it's the, mm-hmm. it's the season of autumn and it's, it's death, you know, it's the letting go of things and the emotion of grief. And so that came to me strongly when you were sharing mm-hmm. the dream. And I was, I was picturing the knife, you know, that the yeah. message finally comes in with a knife. Um, and the sword, mm-hmm. the sword, a sword, a sword. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in the dream, in, um, what I saw, or when, excuse me, when I first um, wrote it, the only word that I could come up with was a chainsaw. Oh. That's what I thought I saw was a chainsaw, but it wasn't. But that's, you know, it's like I saw a sword, but I said chainsaw. Huh. Because my logic, you know, logic was telling me, well, she couldn't cut him down with a sword. He's hanging from the rafters. It could only be a chainsaw. Oh. See. Hmm. So it was like, you know, it's, it's you know, that, that thing of you've got an image. And yeah. You don't have the words to describe it because you don't have a, I didn't have an experience with a sword. Uh-huh. You know, so here's this archetypal image. Yeah you know, penetrating through the, the um, unconscious coming from that, that, uh, you know, the collective unconscious coming through to me. And I didn't have an, I didn't have an experience with it. So in recalling it, logic said, oh, well, it's going to be chainsaw. That's what that shape was, mm. you know, that, but no, that's not what it was. Mm-hmm. And I realized that re-entering the dream um, later in therapy, um, in doing hypnotherapy with it. And you said the same thing about Kevin's drawings. 
mm-hmm. you know, that there, that there weren't words for that, right. but mm-hmm. there's, there's imagery and symbolism and mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, this is so interesting uh, to me. Thank you for offering that the metal energy. I've not ever had anyone um, point that out. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I, I, I hear it a little bit in the quality of your voice and in so many, so much of what you say, because in your life, these metal aspects of our, of our mental, emotional experience, you know, including discernment, including grief, you know, that those are important to you, at least this mm-hmm. evening, this evening while we're talking, you yes. know, so. You would be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You would be right. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you so much, Carla. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about dreams as a tool for healing, you know, whether it's through loss, whether it's through, you know, life transitions. Um, it's just been profound for me in enabling me to rebuild my life. You know, um, when this happened, everything I believed uh, I, I questioned everything yeah. I believed to be true just crumbled about and I had to rebuild that foundation and um, you know having my you know my dream journal and and the dreams and having the companions that were willing to support me and un- unconditionally to um, find my way back to life um, was was just a, a great gift. So, you know, I'm not special. I'm, it's not specific to me. We all have, I think, that opportunity in one way or another. And uh, yeah, whether you're dreaming big or small or not at all. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for that too. Um, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, Carla, if anyone wants to learn more about your story or potentially be able to work with you, how can they find you? They can find me on Facebook, uh, Carla Blowy, or Dreaming Kevin, The Path to Healing. I have two pages. They can go to my website, which is dreamingkevin.com. Um, I have a, several tabs on there about dream work um, services, uh, one-on-one or in groups. And um, they can private message me if there are um, into social media, <laughs> Facebook stuff. Okay. That sounds great. I'll, I'll link to your website and your Facebook pages in our show notes for this episode. So great. That people wonderful. can find you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Carla Blowy. I'd love to hear what this episode sparked for you. Any aha moments you had while we were talking dreams of your own that came to mind or any questions or comments you might want to share. Come visit The Dreamer's Den on Facebook. Think about joining our free Facebook group for sharing dreams. You can post about this episode or contact me at thedreamersden.org. I'll see you back here again for the next episode on the new moon. Until then, wishing you deep dreams.